Good morning, Woodland Hills. I love that version of uh, Be Thou My Is the coolest version. Uh, it's kind of that smooth jazz, uh, borderline almost funky. It's uh, the best part of the, the song are the drums. Of course, the drums are the best part of every song. So, yeah. Are you sensing, I mean, i feeling the love this morning. I'm feeling the love in this place. Um, I, it's, it's, it's incredible. I just feel it. I just feel it. And the Spirit of God is here. I, I hope that you can sense that. Where the Spirit of God is, there is freedom. And uh, there's a remarkable freedom here. I just feel very free. It's really been uh, just strengthening and encouraging this to be uh, joining with God's people this whole weekend and worshiping Him. Uh, you guys, there is a movement going on around this globe, and it is exciting, and it's beautiful, and it's Jesus-looking. A uh, lot, of, lot of very, very cool things are happening. Um, this is more towards the podcasters, though everyone's invited to be a part of it. Uh, but the, we're, we're really seeing the need to begin to have some like meetings where kingdom people can start to hook up, with our, meet with one another, and, and uh, get some training and stuff. Uh, on April 22nd and 23rd, I'll be over in the Philadelphia area. We're having a, um, a conference, a kind of informal conference on building kingdom communities. And then, uh, Padrishners, listen up, especially you guys in Europe. We've got thousands of Padrishners in Europe, and we love you guys. Um, we are going to have... It's beautiful. July 29th and 31st, through the 31st, and in Budapest, Hungary, uh, we're going to have a conference. And uh, we'll have some training there, get a chance to meet other kingdom people, some training on how to build kingdom communities in various cultural contexts. And it's going to be great. It's going to be great. So, uh, if, if you can make that, come and join us. Be part of that thing. So we have uh, been in a series, on a short series, on looking at obstacles that keep people from coming to Christ and, and being interested in the church. Last week we talked about judgmentalism. If you weren't here, I, I hope you get that message. Uh, it's, it's an important one. Uh, this morning I want to talk about, for this final message in this series, about faith. The way that people think about faith and the way they therefore think about doubt is a major obstacle to people coming to faith. Um, if you've been here for any length of time, you've probably heard me say this before. It's an observation that most people, Christians and non-Christians alike, in Western culture, assume that your faith is as strong as you are certain. Your faith is as strong as you are doubt-free. And so people talk like this all the time. They'll say things like, like uh, oh, so-and-so, they've just got such faith, they never doubted that God would come through so-and-so has such great faith. They just knew that they were going to get healing. So-and-so has such great faith. They never once questioned the Bible. And so if your faith is as strong as you are doubt-free. Your faith is as strong as you are certain. Uh, this certainty, I, I call this certainty-seeking faith. Because in this view, people try to make themselves feel certain about certain beliefs. They hear the truth that we are saved by faith. But because they think faith is a matter of psychological certainty, it gets translated into faith. You're saved by your psychological certainty. If you can be certain enough that this set of propositions are true, then, then you are saved. And that means then that God uh, must put a premium on psychological certainty. In fact, it must be the supreme virtue. If he's leveraging heaven and hell on your ability to feel certain that various beliefs are true, well, then God really is into psychological certainty. That's, it. That's the highest virtue. Um, and, and, and that model of faith is an obstacle to people coming to faith. Um, for several reasons. One is it just does not make any sense. 
Why is God so into psychological certainty? What is so virtuous about your ability to feel certain that the beliefs that you have are right? What is virtuous about that? In fact, when I used to hold this view, because it was the only view that I was given, um, it always struck me as very unfair. It, it's like the cards are in favor of some people, but other, the cards are stacked against other people because the people who tend to be really good at feeling certain that all their beliefs are right are either fairly simple people or psychotic people. Uh, they're, they're, they're both really good at believing that everything they believe is true. Whereas people who are more intellectually curious, uh, they have trouble bl- being confident that what they believe is certain. Uh, they, 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 it just doesn't come easy for them. And so it's like, what has God got against people who like to think? It's, it's, it just doesn't seem fair. So it doesn't make sense, for, for, for one thing. Why would God damn you? Because you're not certain of things. And secondly, um, it, it's just, uh, well, it, 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 if, if part of your life project is to feel certain that all your beliefs are right, you can easily turn into a butthead. You can, and no one likes to hang around with buttheads. It's like a guy I used to know when I was going to the University of Minnesota. Uh, I was a philosophy major, and this guy was a philosophy major. So we had some classes in common. And um, sometimes we'd go out and talk after these classes, and we'd philosophize. And um, one time it just came out that I was a Christian. I said, yeah, well, I'm a Christian. And this guy, his name was Martin. He was so disappointed. He goes, Really? I thought you were smarter than that. <laughs> I'm like, no, I guess not. I believe in Jesus. <laughs> he said that the thing that really bugged him about Christians is that they seem to be certain of all their beliefs. They're certain that they're right. And, um, and they're certain that God exists, certain that Jesus is the Son of God. They're certain that he rose from the dead, certain that the Bible is the Word of God, certain that their views on morality are all the correct ones. And he says, but look at you're taking the philosophy classes. These are all debatable things. Intelligent people can debate these things, which is why they're not justified feeling certain about them. You can't be certain. You can say you're inclined to believe them, but you can't be certain about them. And it just bugged them that Christians seem to be so certain of all their beliefs. He said he used to, at times, debate Christians now and then, but he finally quit. Because he says it's pointless to try to have any kind of intelligent argument with a person who won't even consider the possibility that they're wrong. You're not really even having a conversation, you know. They're talking to you, but they're not listening to you because they won't let anything in. When you're talking, all they're doing is storing up ammunition to come back at you because the one thing that's important is they've got to convince themselves and try to convince you that they're right. And see, at the time, I was 21 years old, and I, I didn't respond quite the way I would like to now. I, I got kind of ticked off and defensive, and that just proved his point. <laughs> I was... If I were to talk to Martin today, I'd have a different response. I would say, you know what? You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. It is impossible to have a dialogue with somebody who won't consider the possibility that they're wrong. It looks like you're having a dialogue, but really they're having a monologue. They're talking, but they're not listening. And, and it's, it's pointless to try to, to... And the reason is because they have this pressure to try to remain certain of everything that they believe. Because heaven and hell hangs on this. Now, this, this psychological certainty model of faith goes hand in hand with what I sometimes call a package model of faith. The package model of faith is that to be a Christian means you have to accept this package of beliefs. 
It's not just about believing that Jesus is Lord. No, you've got to believe whatever doctrines the, the, the group is telling you. And so you have to accept that every Bible story is true, and you've got to accept their idea of the atonement and their view of the rapture or whatever. And it's a package deal. True Christians believe this set of true beliefs. And they vary from crowd to crowd, but, but that's the mindset. And this also is a major obstacle to people coming to faith. In, in, in Western culture, anyways. We live in a time that is sometimes called postmodern, postmodernism. Uh, and it just refers to the fact that increasingly people in Western culture are growing skeptical of any truth claim. They're not, a lot of people aren't sure that we can know any truths in any kind of objective way. And so here we are in a culture where people are skeptical of all truth claims. And now you're asking someone to believe that you and your group have all the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth. That's a tall order. That's a tall order. Um, and it's a, it's a put off to a lot of folks. The thing is that this model of faith is not a biblical model of faith. The, the certainty seeking faith is a psychological model. It, it's about what's going on in your head. To know how strong your faith is, you have to just ask, well, how certain do I feel? It's a psychological model. The Bible has not a psychological model, but rather a covenantal model. In fact, most of the important terms in the Bible are covenantal. Um, to have faith from a biblical perspective is about your willingness to have faith in another covenant partner and your willingness to pledge to be faithful to this covenant partner. To have faith from a biblical perspective, it's about trust and trustworthiness. Uh, it's about willing to walk in a certain way in relationship to another. It's like saying I do when you get married. You are pledging to trust your spouse and you're pledging to live trustworthy to your spouse in terms of the covenant. So it's about a way of life. And, and your level of psychological certainty is, is completely irrelevant. So long as you're confident enough to trust the other person and to pledge to walk trustworthy in relationship to another person. In fact, from... Far from being faith being about seeking certainty, um, the biblical model of faith is about a willingness to commit in the face of uncertainty. That's why it's called faith. It's, and it's a commitment. You don't know how this is going to turn out. You read the uh, Hebrews 11, their list of heroes of faith. None of those guys got what they thought they were looking for. You don't know how this thing is going to turn out, but you commit to it. You commit to trusting and being trustworthy, and that's the nature of faith. So from a biblical perspective, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is uncommitment or inaction. Now, James gets at this in a really important passage in James chapter 2. Um, now, he's talking to people who claim to have faith, but they don't show it in their life. So he's using language very different from Paul. It looks like he's contradicting Paul, but he's not. When he says faith here, he's, he's, he's using the term as the folks he's talking to are using it. Faith uh, that, that is just about belief. Uh, you can almost uh, put in here uh, so-called faith, where he says faith. And when he says works, he's not talking about trying to earn salvation. He just is meaning evidence in your life. So you'll see what I mean here in a second. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but do not have works? What kind of faith is that? Can faith, or so-called faith, what you're calling faith, can that save you? His answer is no. If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill. And yet, you do not supply their bodily needs. What good is that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. In other words, it's not a living faith. It's not real covenantal faith. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. James says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I, by my works, will show you my faith. 
You believe that God is one. Yay, you do very well. The demons believe that, but they shudder. So here he, he's, he's going after these folks who say I, they claim to have faith, but it's, there's no evidence in, in, in their life. And he's saying, what kind of faith is that? That is a dead faith. That's not a genuine faith. That kind of faith is mere belief. Yeah, you believe things, but the demons believe those things. In fact, the demons probably believe more truth than, than any of us know. But it doesn't do them any good because they're not willing to act on it. They aren't willing to now trust in God and live trustworthy before God. So it's a useless belief in and of itself. Is, is, a, is completely useless. You may, be, you may believe with absolute certainty, you may believe that God wants all of the hungry people to be fed and all of the naked people to be clothed. But it's worthless if you aren't willing to faithfully respond to the call of God to help feed the hungry and clothe the naked. You, think about it like this. You could be psychologically certain that God wants the hungry to be fed and the naked to be clothed. But if you're not willing, this, willing to faithfully obey the call of God to help feed the hungry and clothe the naked, you don't have faith. You have psychological certainty of belief that you don't have faith. On the other hand, it could be a person really sometimes doubts whether God cares about the hungry and, and the, the naked. But if they're confident enough to faithfully respond to the call to feed the hungry and clothe the naked, that person has faith. So you can have you're thinking biblically. You can be psychologically certain about your beliefs and yet completely lack faith. And you can have a lot of doubts about your, 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 your beliefs and you have strong faith. The biblical concept of faith is very different from this modern psychological concept. And this is, I think, one of the most damaging and deceptive aspects of this certainty-seeking faith. Because people, they, they, if you, they hear that you're saved by faith. But if you think faith is a matter of psychological certainty then they think that salvation is just about believing the set of, of Christian truths, truth claims, and, and making yourself as certain as possible. And if you, if you do that, then, well then, then you're saved. When they usually mean by that, you're not going to go to hell. Then you're saved, and it, regardless of whether it has any impact in your life or not. Because it's about what goes on between your ears. And if you're looking for an explanation as to why a bunch of studies have shown that for a good percentage, in fact, the majority of professing Christians in America, their faith makes little to no difference in their life. Their life, their values, their priorities are exactly the same as the surrounding culture. If you're looking for an explanation for it, I submit to you that this is it. It's a psychological, certainty-seeking model of faith. Thinking that you're saved because you believe certain things, is, 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 it's like thinking that you're married because you believe that you're, this woman is your spouse. I, I, I'm, your marriage consists of you just remaining confident that this person is your spouse yes shelly is my wife folks when you sign up for marriage you don't sign up to believe that you're married when you sign up for marriage you sign up to get married <laughs> yeah it, it, there's a reality there and 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 you're committing to walk a certain way and and so when you get married uh, it's about changing the way you think you no longer think like a single person and you no longer act like a single person you act like a married person and you think like a married person and that affects how you treat this other person believing that they're your spouse does nothing if a person gets married and they just are confident that this person is their spouse and yet they keep on thinking like a single person and acting like a single person well there's no reality to the marriage that's you, they may be legally married, but there won't be any reality of marriage. The reality of marriage is created when the two people are thinking like an us rather than a me. Um, and see, God only trades in the commodity of reality, not in the commodity of legality. 
That's the same thing with our marriage to Jesus. Salvation, from a biblical perspective, it's not a legal decree because you believe certain things that you're going to get out of hell. It's rather a relationship. The, the, the relationship with Jesus is salvation. This is eternal life, that we know God in Jesus Christ, Jesus says in John 17. Uh, it's not like the relationship brings about salvation as a third thing. No, the relationship is salvation. The relationship is what transforms us. The relationship is what restores us. The relationship is what, what reconciles us to him. The relationship is everything. And, and it's a marriage-like relationship. That's why the Bible calls him the groom and we're the bride of Christ. But see, you're not married just because you believe in your spouse, that the person is your spouse. You're married because you're actually married to the spouse. And that has got to impact everything. It's not just about having an intellectual belief that Jesus is Lord and make yourself certain of that. No, it's about making Jesus Christ Lord, <laughs> about actually surrendering to him and, and, and now living your life as though he is Lord and as though you are subject to him. It's now living, you're no longer thinking of me being in control, you're thinking of him being in control. And that's got to impact everything. It, that, that, to, to have him Lord of your life, really Lord of your life, not just a belief that he's Lord of your life, but... Surrender to him as Lord of your life. Well, that, that changes how you think about yourself. It changes how you think about others. It changes how you look at the world. It changes how you feel about the world. It, it changes your priorities. It changes your value system. It changes how you spend your time. It changes how you spend your money. It changes everything. Why? Because you just got married. You know, it's like when, when you marry your spouse, that should make a difference. <laughs> you know, it, 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 your life should be significantly changed. Well, if that's true in an earthly marriage, how much more true is it in our heavenly marriage? This changes everything. So people can see that. You're walking a certain way. God knows we don't do it perfectly, but we're trying to be trustworthy covenant partners with God. And, and that, you can see that it's visible. That's why in the Gospels, several times Jesus says, it says that Jesus saw their faith. He saw their faith. You can see it. Faith is, you can see it because the person's actually walking a certain way. It's not an invisible piece of data between your ears. How certain do I feel? How are my neurons lining up today? You know, you can't see that. But... You can see a person who's living in a trustworthy relationship to Jesus Christ as Lord. It changes everything, folks. It changes everything. So what that means is this. Uh, since faith is, 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 is the walk and it's the commitment and it's the action, it means that, that um, uh, we, God's not impressed by your level of certainty. That, that is not on his table. He's not impressed with that. You are, you're really confident you're right. No, he's not impressed by that. And he's not discouraged by your lack of certainty. He's not discouraged by your doubt. As long as you're confident enough to walk with him as Lord and your life uh, submitted to him. As long as you're willing to trust him and to live trustworthy before him. What it means, folks, this biblical concept of faith means that we don't need to pretend that we don't have doubts when we've got doubts. If we're thinking biblically... No one gets points for being certain, and no one gets points taken away for, for having doubts. Uh, we, we don't have to pretend anything. We don't have to pretend that we're more certain than we are, either to ourselves or to non-believers. Uh, I, we don't have to try to convince everyone that we're right about everything. No, all, all we need to do in sharing the gospel is we say we ought to be able to give the reasons why we are confident enough to base our life on the claim that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we invite them to do the same. There's no need to puff yourself up and, and, and pretend like you're right about everything. It means if we're thinking in terms of the biblical concept of faith, we don't need to get defensive uh, and turn into buttheads when people challenge our, 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 our views. Right? It's like, well, if you've got something that, that calls into question what I believe, let's, ha let's see it. Uh, look, if, if what you believe is true, it ought to stand up to scrutiny so you've got nothing to fear. And if what you believe doesn't stand up to scrutiny, 
Well, then that's good to know too because you don't want to go through your life believing in false beliefs. So either way, it should be open investigation. Let's talk about it. And this relates to the package model of faith I mentioned earlier. This idea that to be a Christian, a true Christian, you buy this set of beliefs. Um, and you've got to try to make yourself as certain as possible as, as, uh, about all these, this package of beliefs. Now that is, as I said, a major obstacle to people coming to faith in this culture. But it's also a dangerous way for anyone to hold their faith. Maybe a hundred years ago you could get away with it. But nowadays, in our pluralistic world, this is a dangerous way to hold on to faith. And here's why. If you think that salvation is about believing, remaining certain of this set of beliefs, then the minute you start questioning one of them, the whole thing is called into question. It's an, it sets you, it sets an all or nothing kind of mindset in, in, in play. And if you ever become convinced that one of those beliefs, beliefs is wrong, the whole thing can come tumbling down like a house of cards. It's like when I first came to Christ in this fundamentalist Pentecostal church, I, I was told, and this is a quote, uh, unless, unless the world was created in six literal days, like Genesis 1 says, the whole Bible might as well be a book of lies. Well, it took, it took less than one semester at the university to get that belief knocked out. And the whole thing came tumbling down. Because I was thinking in terms of package. To be a Christian means you've got to believe all this. And so now I don't believe this, so I guess I've got to get rid of the whole thing. And it's tragic. We are losing young people by the millions because they go away to college and they're given this package model of faith and the certainty-seeking model of faith. And, and uh, it doesn't take much to take one course and one clever professor and they come to the conclusion that, that maybe one Bible story isn't anchored in history or there's a contradiction they can't solve or there's one belief that they had that just isn't true. And they get rid of the whole thing. It's just tragic and it's terribly unnecessary. Yeah. I, I, I would propose this. Think about this. Uh, not all beliefs are created equal. Instead of a package model, we need to have a graded model. Of, of uh, Some things are more important than others. Jesus you know, tried to chastise the Pharisees because they were tithing mint and cumin, but they neglected the weightier matters of the law. Some things weigh more than others. Uh, it, it's like this. It, it's one thing for me to have grave doubts about, let's say, the literal rapture, which I do doubt, or, or about a particular Bible story. And it's quite another thing if I begin to have grave doubts about... Let's say Jesus died for our sins and that the cross reveals the character of God. Because see, if, I, if I'm doubting the uh, literal rapture or doubting the, uh, a particular Bible story, that doesn't, or at least it shouldn't, impact my trust in God. And it shouldn't, it shouldn't lessen my motivation to want to live trustworthy before God. But if I start to have grave doubts that Jesus is the revelation of God, that the cross reveals the very character of God, well now, see, that... That undermines the very nature of my covenant. The cross is why I trust in, place all my trust in God. The cross, according to the New Testament, it is what reveals everything we need to know about God and everything we, know, we need to know about ourselves and other people. It reveals this altogether lovely, beautiful, gracious God who could not be more beautiful and could not be more trustworthy. And, and that's how he wins our trust. He died for us. And it reveals that we are apart from that love. We are lost. We are headed for self-destruction. But because of that love, we have unsurpassable worth. We're loved with an everlasting love. We're forgiven. Uh, God has done and will do everything possible to be reconciled to us. And he just asks us to accept it. So, so all we need to know about ourselves and about other people and ourselves is found there in the cross. That's why Paul could say, I don't, I don't know anything of, of, among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's enough. You know all you need to know, all you can know, right there. Now, I, I've got really good reasons for believing that is true. 
A lot of reasons. Um, and if you want to know what those reasons are, there's some books out in the bookstore that can tell you those reasons. I'm, I'm confident that that is true. I could be wrong. I'm open to anyone giving me objections to it, but I've looked at all the objections and I still end up believing in this. So I'm confident it's true. But if I ever came upon really compelling reasons that convinced me it wasn't, well, now, folks, I'd have to become a Buddhist or something. Namu ho renge kyo, namu ho renge kyo. I don't want to become a Buddhist. But see, so the foundation of everything is, is the revelation of God on the cross. Now, here's, here's the thing. The converse is also true. As long as I remain confident enough to trust that God looks like Jesus Christ dying on the cross, and the cross reveals what he thinks about me, if I'm confident about that, then actually I could be wrong about every other thing I believe, and I'm going to be okay. Because see, it, it, amen. It's because... Um, my life and my identity and my worth and my significance and my security is wrapped up in what God thinks about me on the cross, not in all the particular things I believe. And my confidence in God, my trust in God is, is based on his revelation on the cross, not in any of the particular things that I believe. And my motivation for following God and be, trying to live trustworthy before him is anchored in the cross, not in any particular thing that I believe. And so I could be wrong about every particular thing I believe, but as long as I'm confident enough to trust that God looks like that, and this is what he thinks about me, well, I'm good to go. <laughs> you know, I, I, the, the core is settled. The covenant is based on the cross, not on any particular thing. And see, folks, I encourage us to embrace this model as opposed to a package model. Because what it does, it's just so freeing. It's so freeing. It means you don't need to be right about everything, and you don't need to be certain about everything, and you don't need to be a defensive butthead when someone challenges your faith. No, because your, your, your identity is not wrapped up in that stuff. Go ahead and be wrong about that stuff. Who cares, really, as long as you've got the center of the center? It, it, it frees us. It means that we don't need to try to be selling a package to people out there. Like, here's a set of things you've got to believe to come to Christ. Folks, I encourage you to be okay with folks doubting everything. They're not sure about anything in the Bible. They're not sure about, about any of the Christian doctrines. But introduce them to the beautiful God who's revealed on the cross. And we've got really good reasons for believing that that is true. And invite them into that. Who cares what they think about your view on baptism or communion or predestination or, or anything? If they don't have that, but if they have that, now you've got the rest of your life to talk about those things with. It, it, it's not, let's not think all or nothing. Let's not think package deal. Let's think of the center of the center. That's what we want to introduce people to. And really, if, if, if you hold on to your faith this way, where you're, you're, all your eggs are in one basket, it frees you to be able to question things and to have doubts. To give yourself permission to actually learn new things. Maybe you change your beliefs. Maybe you discover something that strikes you as more true. It frees you to be okay with that because your life is no longer on the line for questioning those things. And sometimes you'll find that in the process of giving yourself permission to doubt, well, now you're in a position where God can reveal new things to you. So if you're doing life trying to be convinced, convince yourself that everything you already believe is true, God can't get a word in edgewise. It's like throwing sand pebbles at a nice armor or something. It's ching, ching, ching. It'll go off because you're, you're, you're too busy being right. It's okay to be wrong, and maybe we need to be open to that possibility so God can maybe teach us something new. Doubt can be a precursor to getting a deeper revelation. So I'm going to share this as an example. I'm going to be very honest with you guys. I'm always honest with you, but I'm not always this exclusive, uh, and I'm hoping that you don't freak out, all right? So uh, here's the thing. 
I believe, I really believe that the Bible, the whole Bible, is the inspired Word of God. And I believe that because I have really good reasons for believing that Jesus Christ is Lord. If you want to know what those reasons are, there's books out there that will tell you about it. I have really good reasons for believing that. Historical, philosophical, experiential, etc. Um, and Jesus clearly endorsed the whole Bible as the Word of God. He quotes it all the time. Uh, refers to it as the Word of God. So... If, if Jesus is my Lord and he believes the Bible is the word of God, I really feel a little awkward correcting his theology. Just saying. Hey, son of God, you're wrong about one point. Uh, no, I, I take it on his authority. This, this is the inspired word of God. Now, here's the thing. I believe it's the inspired word of God, but I'm not, I don't trust in God because of my view of the Bible. I, I trust in God because of the cross. And, and I'm not motivated to live for God because of my view of the Bible. I'm motivated to live for God because of the cross. And I, my, my identity isn't wrapped up in my view of the Bible. My identity is wrapped up in my view of the cross. So as long as I'm sufficiently confident about that, it frees me to be able to admit this. I believe the entire Bible is the inspired word of God. But I don't always see how. You know what I'm talking about. Hey, have you read the book? <laughs> Try Judges 19 sometime. Oh. No, seriously, some of that, you read that, it's like, honestly, how is that divinely inspired? Um, some parts are just bizarre. Other parts are gross um, and odd. You must twist the pigeon's head three times counterclockwise and then sprinkle it on yourself. What's, yeah. Here's an example. I've been reading the book of Judges lately, and there's this character in the book of Judges named Samson. Yeah, weird Samson. Hey, he's a guy who is supernaturally strong when his hair grows long, which is already kind of weird. This guy, he was vulgar, he was base, he was violent, immoral, slept with prostitutes, dumb, tricked in women, but God was with him. And um, he did some strange things. Here, here's an example, some stupid things. Uh, he's at a party and he makes a bet with some guys about a riddle that he bets they can't solve. And the riddle has to do with a lion he killed a couple days ago and then found honey in it later on and ate the honey because the bees made their... bees. Do bees make beehives in carcasses? I don't know, but this strikes me as strange. So he tells him this riddle. Well, these guys want to you know, figure out what the riddle is. And so uh, his wife happens to be uh, related to these guys who he told the, the thing to. So the guys try to get the wife to put pressure on Samson to tell her the secret of the riddle. Well, Samson always has a weakness for women, especially when they nag him to death. So she nags and nags and nags and nags. Finally, he tells her the riddle. She tells the guy. Samson loses the bet. Unfortunately, Samson doesn't have the money to pay for the bet, which tells you what a stupid bet that was. So Samson then, with his supernatural strength and long hair, walks into town, kills 30 random people, takes their clothes, sells it to pay off the stupid debt. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. What an edifying story. <laughs> what is that doing there? It's like, oh, come on. And then later on, he, there's, there's other stuff he does. He, 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 the Spirit of God comes upon him with his supernatural long hair, and he kills a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. That's like a Jackie Chan movie on steroids. <laughs> well, okay, so here's the thing. See, 
if I had certainty seeking faith, I had to remain certain that everything I believe was right. And if I had this package model faith where everything has to be, you know, everything's equally important. So every story I got to have a full confidence in. And, and if I was, if my identity was wrapped up in my view of the Bible and, and, and figuring all this out, I would be seriously knotted up. In fact, I sometimes used to get seriously knotted up when I come upon stories like this. Ah, I need to believe. I, I, I have to just take this at face value. And ah, how do you reconcile that with the character of God? See, you're caught between a rock and a hard place. You're supposed to put all your trust in, G, in, in the revelation of God in Jesus. But now you're supposed to believe the Bible is the God's word, and this seems to contradict that. Ugh, what do I do? I can't imagine Jesus coming out a person to inspire him to slay a thousand people with a jawbar of an ass and kill 30 bystanders to get their clothing and pay off a stupid debt. So you're between a rock and a hard place. If I was certainty seeking faith, I'd be really conflicted. And if you are a person who still holds to certainty seeking faith and a package model of faith, probably what I'm saying right now is seriously conflicting you. You may be getting a little angry at me right now. Like, what sort of teacher is this? Teachers are supposed to come and reassure us that we're believing all the right things, not come up here and screw up our heads by raising questions about a Bible story. What kind of lousy teacher are you? Well, here, let me slow down. No one's packing, are they? (laughs) Uh, See, here's the thing. Since my life is in Christ and my worth is in Christ and all my motivation for living for God is in Christ and my picture of God is in Christ, not in my view of the Bible, or I, I'm free to admit I'm human and I don't know. Uh, I, it's like, yeah, it, it's, uh, okay, I believe it. I'm the authority of Jesus, but also in the authority of Jesus, I have trouble believing it. So I, I, I just... Some of you know this. Ten years ago, I set out to write a book trying to explain all this stuff. I collected, through a lot of reading, collected all these different ways of looking at some of these stories and all the violence and all that. And, and I was going to try to explain it. Uh, you know, here's why God had to do that and blah, 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 blah. And I got 50 pages into this book and I had to stop, just quit. And the reason is because my arguments sucked. <laughs> they just, they were terrible. I, they seemed so plausible five years ago when I first read them. But now that I'm putting it down... It, it's just woefully inadequate. And if I'm not convinced by it, how can I ask anyone else to be convinced by it? It's just really... And the worst part of it was that I had really come to see the importance of the fact that Jesus says that all Scripture is about him. John 5, all Scripture. He's the life of Scripture. All Scripture points to him. Uh, Luke 24, it not only points to him, but it especially points to his sacrificial sufferings on the cross. So all Scripture is inspired by God to point to the cross. Well... Even when I had an argument that I could give the best possible spin on some of these stories um, and make out look a little bit less nasty, none of them did anything to help us see how those stories point to God's perfect love revealed on the cross. How does the story of a guy killing a thousand folks when the Spirit of God comes in with the jawbone of a donkey, how does that point to the enemy-loving, self-sacrificial, nonviolent love of God revealed on the cross? That's an interesting question, isn't it? So what I, 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 after I abandoned that book project for three or four months, I just lived in this place. I never could have been in this place if I had had a, a certainty-seeking package model of faith. I wouldn't have given myself permission. I wouldn't have gone there. But since I don't get points taken away for not knowing and being in ambiguity, I just rested in this. It's like, I don't know. And I just lived in this. And I don't know if this was revelation or not. It felt like it. Some maybe will agree it was, and others will certainly think it's not. But after three, four months, I actually began to see how stories like that point to the cross. Uh, it began, I, I mean, it was like one of those magic eye pictures, you know, where, or the magic eye books where you're looking at random 
patterns. But if you look at it just right, relax your eye, uh, look through the picture, not at the picture for all those chips. Um, all of a sudden, a three-dimensional picture rises out of them. It's like, ooh, it just rises out. Well, I found this happening with Scripture. If I sat there believing that God's character was really revealed in the cross, and yet this is divinely inspired, as I sat in that cognitive dissonance, I at one point began to see, like a magic eye picture, the cross rising out of these violent pictures of God. And I can't go into what's all involved in that, but that sent me on a nine-year research project, that and a writing project, and the book will be coming out next year, and, 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 and all of that. And I'll be talking much more about this as we near the, the publication date for those books. Right now, I just want us to, to see that it's okay to doubt. And living in that doubting space or that questioning space or the state of ambiguity, it's sometimes the best place to be because now you're open to God revealing a new thing. Otherwise, God can't get a word in edgewise. Be okay with ambiguity. It's okay to be human. It's okay to not know. It's okay not to have to figure things out. It's okay to say, I don't know. In fact, those are three of the most important words we could ever say. And, and it'd be okay. And to be honest about stuff. Um, now, that's not permitted in a, in a psychological certainty church or a packaged church. There just isn't space for that. But I want there to be space here. Especially because I'm the one who needs the most. All right. Okay, so be okay with that doubt. Let, let me say one, one other word. What time do we have here? Uh, it's going to have to be very quick. Okay. I've been talking about being okay with doubt. When you are confident enough to keep on trusting that Jesus is Lord and that uh, you want to live a trustworthy life for him uh, in relationship with him. But what do you do if the doubt doesn't even get you there? If you're paralyzed, it stops you from, you're unsure about the basic storyline, about that Jesus died on the cross. What if that's just all made up? Well, let me say this. If you're in a position of doubt, chronic doubt, paralyzing doubt, whether you once were a Christian and now you're on the verge of not being one or you never were one, ask yourself, what is the source of this doubt? And, and the source will come down to one of three things, and it could be a combination. But on the one hand, sometimes, especially Christians who, who once were in on this, they sometimes start to have paralysis doubt because there's something in their life that is inconsistent with their walk with God. And our brains are really good at rationalizing things. Our brains don't like cognitive dissonance for very long. And so it, they'll try to do justifications about stuff. And it's not that you're doing it intentionally. But I have known folks who start to seriously doubt things. And the only, it wasn't a rational doubt at all. It was simply because they got involved in something or a relationship or what have you. And, and it, was more it was more convenient for them to believe this wasn't true. And that's not the case of all doubt or even most doubt, but it's sometimes. And so ask yourself the question, could the source be something in your life? Your brain is trying to make your life a little more convenient by coming to the conclusion that that's no longer true. How freeing that would be if there wasn't a God that I had to answer to. Um, and if you're in that position, all I can say really is, is uh, for the love of God, <laughs> um, I can promise you, and the Bible promises you that that. I, it will hurt to give this thing up, but it'll be a trillion, trillion, trillion times worth it. Um, it, it this is maybe an important relationship or important something to you, and, but it's not worth giving up what you're giving up uh, to have it. And, 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 and if there's any part of you left that can at least do this, it, be honest that right now you're, having, you're questioning everything, but pray, if there is a God, will you help me have the power to get rid of this so I can see the truth? Uh, God will meet you wherever you're at.
Secondly, a person might be doubting for very, for very legitimate intellectual reasons. They just have never been able to see uh, the compelling reasons why one might believe in Jesus Christ as Lord. They, they've just never been given that. Or maybe they've never had responses to objections that they've had. And if that is you, I encourage you just to dig deeper. Dig deeper. Because I've, I've deconstructed my faith several times in my life. Gotten to the bottom where I just start over and say, okay, why do I believe what I believe? Look at all the possible options. Look at all the reasons for believing in Jesus. Look at all the reasons for not believing in Jesus. Look at all the objections. Look at all that. And I have consistently found that I've got way more reasons for believing that he's Lord than that he's not. It would take me more faith to believe that he's not Lord than, than it takes to believe that he is. Um, and so I, to, I encourage you to give it a fair shake. And once again, I'll say that there's several books out there that, that could help you in that. Um, if you're of the academic type, Paul Eddy and I wrote a book called The Jesus Legend. And we look at every possible objection to believing that Jesus was the way the Gospels portray him. Uh, and we respond to those. Uh, you might find our responses persuasive. Or uh, at a more popular level, there's letters from a skeptic. Or Jesus' Lord or legend, that's out there. So if that's you, just check it out. Give it a fair shake. The third thing, the final thing, is that there are people who believe it's true, but they begin to doubt it because it's not a volitional thing and it's not an intellectual thing, it's an emotional thing. Um, it's like a guy that I talked to four or five months ago. He, he, he was raised Christian and he's always believed it and always done the Christian things. But now he's approaching, I think it was 30 or so, and he's having like a crisis of faith where he's doubting it. He just, and the reason he's doubting it is because he says it just, doesn't, it just doesn't feel true. It just doesn't feel true. Like you talk about God's presence. I never felt God's presence. I never feel God's love. I talk to God, but he never talks back. So I feel like I'm, I'm, a, I'm a believer living in an atheist world, but maybe the whole thing's just a crock. Maybe it's just all made up. It just doesn't feel true to him. And if that is you, I want you to know that you're not alone because there's a lot of folks that feel that way. In fact, all of us go through periods of that. Um, but for some folks, it's just chronic. Now, if that's you, let me say this. Uh, here's what I told this guy. And, and he it ended up really revolutionizing his walk with God. All of our feelings are associated with the pictures and the videos and the soundtrack and the movies that we run in our head. We, we all live in an imaginative world that interprets the outside world, and that, that, that is where our emotions all come from. That what we feel is real or not real, true or false, loving, not loving, it all is related to the movies and tapes and soundtracks and videos that we run in our head, this imagination. Um, and, and, and what I found is that some people, they, they believe in, in Christian things, but for whatever reasons, they've just never entered into it with their imagination. Um, they still live in the world as though, in their head, they construe the world as though God didn't exist, even though they believe he does exist. And it's never gotten down to the level of their imagination. They never, it doesn't affect the way they, they run the movies and the tapes and the soundtracks that they have in, in their head. It's like, it's like this. I, if you take two groups of people, one group really gets into worship and prayer, and the other group just doesn't. I have found that the difference between those two groups is not necessarily their level of commitment. It's rather the group that gets into it, prayer and worship, they're doing things, they may not know it, but they're doing things in their head. They're seeing, they, they see who they're worshiping to and who they're praying to. And, and it's vivid and it's concrete. And when you imagine something vividly, it impacts you. When you just think of it abstractly or vaguely, it doesn't impact you. So this group gets into it because it's impacting them. They're the ones who cry during worship and, and, and get all excited or what have you. This other group of people, when they sing, they do it because you're supposed to, but it feels like you're just a bunch of people in a room singing a song. They don't, they don't imagine anything else beside that. And when they pray, they feel like they're just praying to a wall because they're not, they're not, nothing else real is going on in their head. 
If you will take your, if you can start surrendering your imagination to God and living in that world, you'll find that you begin to feel and sense the reality of the Holy Spirit. Um, things come alive for you. So I encourage you, if this is you, I encourage you to take time, regular time, set it aside, put on some light music, and just imagine Jesus. Talk to Jesus. Ask the Spirit to bring you Jesus, because the Bible says that's his job. And in fact, what starts as just you, you trying to imagine Jesus ends up being you meeting Jesus. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and see, it said, hear him say to you all that he said about you in the Bible, but now you hear it said with your name. And you can see his love in his eyes. And you, and you can feel, sense his love in, in the, his voice. And, and, and sense his love in his embrace of you. And see, now the things of God, the truths you believe, are starting to become experiential and concrete and vivid. And that's when they begin to feel real to you. Because they are real to you. This is, you know, people think that imagination is just sort of fantasy land. You know, and, and it is if it's taking you away from truth. That's fantasy. But we think with our imagination, and, and to the degree that it lines up with truth, it's taking us closer to truth, closer to reality. Well, I've got good reasons for thinking that this is real, and so I'm going to get my imagination to line up with it. And as I do, now the abstract truths, which otherwise would not feel real, begin to, I can begin to experience them as real. And that's when they begin to be transformative. That's what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 3 when he says, And we all with unveiled minds, talking about our mind, we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Behold, take time to behold Jesus. In fact, it's good for all of us to do this. But it is the antidote for those who have doubt because of feeling. So folks, would you stand up? I want to close with this. I encourage us to have all of our eggs in the basket of Jesus Christ crucified. I encourage us to get all of our life and our trust in God and our motivation to live for God from Jesus Christ crucified. Believe true things, yes, but don't be buttheads. Don't, don't, don't be afraid of being wrong. Don't think you always have to be right. Uh, uh, and, and when you share Christ with other people, don't present to them a package of all the things, all your opinions. No, there's only one thing that's absolutely needful, and that is Christ crucified. As we leave here, can we do, go out? As, uh, if you're here and have any need that could use prayer, come on up to the, to the front of the auditorium here. The, our prayer teams will be up here. Maybe it's about the doubt issue, or maybe it's about something totally different. Uh, they'd love to pray with you. And if you want to become a follower of Jesus, come on up here. Talk to these folks, and they'll explain how to do that. As we leave here, I... I want to commission us to be a people who don't just believe, but we have faith. Can we be a people who walk out of here trusting that God is faithful, as we sang about earlier, and pledging that we will strive to be faithful in relationship to him? If you agree with that, say amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Love you. Go out. Be faithful.